Hey everybody, thanks once again for tuning in, I guess, to Thinking Biblically about things that matter. We've got a, I think it's going to be sort of a long podcast today. I think um, this is going to take us a little bit of time to get through. Uh, What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the um, topic of head coverings. Um, While we were doing our gender series, uh, we, we, I bumped into a few passages of scripture um, that I didn't really get to unpack all that, um, all all that well. I didn't get to uh, do much of a deep dive into, um, and this is one of the passages that caught my eye. Um, it's a, it's an important one, and um, and I I think it it um, is either misunderstood or sort of ignored um, as being. Um, unimportant uh, to our day and age. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. That's what we're going to look at today. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. We're going to look at the idea of head coverings. Um, and what we want to do is we is we want to respond wisely, biblically to this passage. Uh, we want to respond humbly to it. Um, too often, you come into a, a passage like this and you either, um, well, some churches, some some people will say, well, this means that we all have to wear head coverings or all the women have to wear head coverings, so we're just going to make it a rule in our church. Uh, so, so some people do that. They respond that way. And then some people say, this means nothing to us because it was obviously just for the first century in Corinth and has nothing to do with us whatsoever. And so we want to avoid both of those. So... So we're going to take a good look at the passage, and we're going to see what does this have to do with us today. Um, and so this is sort of a maybe a, a, a bonus episode to the gender series. I'm not sure what you would call it. Or maybe it's a standalone episode. Um, and so we're going to, we're going to dig into the, the um, topic of head coverings today. So 1 Corinthians 11 um, 3 through 16. That's the passage we're going to be in. And we're just going to, we're going to work through it verse by verse. And we're going to, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says. And then at the end, we're going to just have some, some application. I'll have one big point of application. Then I'll have like several bullet points of application as well. So we're just going to, um, see what the verses say. And then what do they mean for our lives today? I want to mention um, that um, before we begin, I want to mention I was greatly helped by the really good scholarly work of Thomas Schreiner, Roy Chiampa, Brian Rosner, Andrew Wilson, Andy Nacelli, um, and some others along the way. Um, and then also, we're going to cover a lot of material today. If you would like my notes, um, or if you would like resource suggestions, sort of the resources that I used putting these together. Um, if you would like any of that, please email me, um, pastorsteveron at gmail.com. Also, I mean, we're going through a bunch of stuff. If you have any questions just from what I've said here, uh, feel free to email me. Feel, feel, feel free to, to reach out. Um, and uh, so, so anyhow, with all that being said, let's get going. Um, let's, let's start walking through this passage verse by verse. All right, starting in verse 3. Paul says, 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul is using the word head there because in some ways it's a bit of a play on words. He's going to talk a lot about head coverings, so he's using the word head kind of metaphorically. Now, the, ma the vast majority of the time when the New Testament uses this word for head, this Greek word for head, it means something like authority, a superior leadership position. All right, so that's, that's what head generally means in the New Testament. And I mention this because defining the word head is important to understanding this passage. Some people have suggested that head means source, as in the head of a river, but that's incredibly likely, uh, or incredibly unlikely here. It's, it's really never used that way in like the Septuagint, which Paul, would, you know, which Paul is always leaning on. Um, it's, never, it's never really clearly used that way in, in Scripture. Um, it, it almost always just clearly denotes authority in, in, the, in the vast majority of the passages in the Bible where it uses this word for head. And then, and then also, most convincing for me is that head means authority in Paul's own writing in the New Testament. For instance, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So most evangelical commentators think that's the idea that Paul is driving at when he uses the word head in our passage. So the, the husband is the head of the wife. That, that means there's a very concrete way in which the husband is called to lead the wife as her head, as her authority, as her leader. And there is a way in which the wife is to submit to him, to follow his lead. Now, it's, it's important to note here, even if you're already very aware, it's important to note right away that the way that a husband is to lead his wife must follow the pattern of Jesus. The husband's headship must look like Jesus's headship. I mean, because you follow up those verses we just read in Ephesians 5, right after those verses, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and later on, it says the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a self-sacrificing love. Now, we're not going to dive deep into that idea this morning, but we have to keep that picture in our mind. When we think of the husband as the head of the wife, we think of the husband joyfully putting the spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being of his wife ahead of his own every single day. So, back to our verse at hand, 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We see that there is an obvious hierarchy in these various relationships, and, and we see that it's grounded in theology. It's grounded in the Trinity. When a wife submits to her husband as her head, Paul sees it as a picture of the way God the Son submits to God the Father. So it's, this, it's a picture of the Trinity. It, it's grounded in the triune God. And it's also a reminder that this is not about how much someone is worth. God the Son is equal in essence to God the Father. He is equally God. 
The Father is not in any way more God than God the Son is. The only difference is their roles. Paul wants us to see this analogy because he wants to make sure that we understand that just because the wife is called to submit to her husband does not make her any less of a person or any less valuable in any way. A difference in roles does not mean a difference in worth. So, so we, we get this strong sense here, don't we, in this passage that this isn't only a first century in Corinth thing. This is about the eternal triune God. This is about creation. This is about the gospel. This is about Jesus Christ submitting to the Father and carrying out his good plan to save us. So we know that whatever head coverings is all about, it's not simply a thing that Paul wanted to happen in the first century. This is, a, this is something that pertains to us today because it's grounded in the eternal good um, nature and work of God. Now, on to verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5 says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So now Paul is talking here about the corporate worship service, when the church gathers to, to worship on a Sunday morning. And so the first thing we notice is that Paul assumed that women would have an active part in the corporate worship service. He didn't have a problem with that. He expected women to pray and to prophesy in the service. But he had very strong feelings about the way it happened. Okay? So, so he had, I mean, he had protocol in place in the churches he planted, in the churches he was over, where he had protocol about head coverings. He wanted men to serve in the church with their head uncovered, and he wanted women to serve in the church with their head covered. It was very important to him. Now, why in, the fir in first century Corinth, why are head coverings such a big deal? Well, I was doing some study on this, some research on this, and I was pointed to the good work of a man named Bruce Winter, who is an expert. I mean, he's a historian, New Testament scholar, expert on the first century historical cultural context of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, he spent decade, three decades studying um, First Corinthians and, and what the culture of Corinth was like. So, so he, he knows first century Corinth inside and out. And, and here's basically what Winters argues. All right. So number one, during religious ceremonies, pagan Roman men with a high social status pulled their togas over their heads when they led by praying or offering sacrifices. So this was a way, okay, so this is a way for men to show that they were somebody. If when they pulled their toga up over their head, that was a, that was a status symbol. That was a way to, 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 to say, look at me, I'm somebody. I've got money, I've got influence, I've got clout, I've got standing, look at me. All right, so that's, that's, what, that's what, when a man pulled his toga up over his head, that's the, um, uh, that's the vibe he was giving off. That's the signal he was sending, that I'm somebody. And so Paul is saying, we're not going to do that at all. We are not here 
to bring attention to our social standing or to our wealth or to our influence. We're, we're here to, to make much of Christ. So Paul is saying it would dishonor a man's head. It would dishonor Christ for him to do this. All right, so the second thing Winters argues is this. A, a woman's covering, her head, socially indicated that she was married. So the thin headscarf or head covering symbolized a married woman's modesty and chastity and submission to her husband. It was one way in which a wife honored her husband. And then he also says a new kind of wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world. One who rebelled against the culture that allowed husbands, but not wives, to be sexually promiscuous. All right, so in first century Corinth, in the first century Roman world, men were, um, were allowed and even expected um, to be sexually promiscuous. Husbands were not expected to be sexually faithful to their wives. Um, they, were, they were expected, um, they were even encouraged. It was just part of the culture for men to, um, to have all kinds of relationships going, and it was, it was like no big deal. But, but wives were expected to be faithful to their husbands. They were expected to, to be sexually faithful to their husbands. And so there was this new kind of wife that was emerging in first century Roman world who was saying, I'm done with this. If my husband can get away with whatever he wants to get away with, I'm going to as well. This is hypocrisy. I'm going to go sleep with whoever I want to sleep with because my husband is sleeping with whoever he wants to sleep with. And so one way that a, a wife would show that she was just sexually available to, to men, if she was in a public mixed setting, she would, she would show that she um, is sexually available she would do this by removing her veil, by removing her head covering. Um, so Paul is saying a Christian wife should not deliberately remove her veil while praying or prophesying during a time of corporate worship because that would contentiously identify her with other promiscuous women. And so you could, so, so, so Andrew Wilson sums it up all this way. He says the, the, these, these head coverings mattered because so, so, that, so, that, um, so, so that gender distinctions were preserved with men looking like men and women looking like men, women, and then, and then both, both sexes had appropriate regard for their head. Men honored Christ and women honored their husbands, and, and then that married women were, were not sexually available. So that's what these—that's what this head covering meant to Paul. Um, that's what the—that's the symbols that Paul is talking about in this chapter. They meant some combination of those three things. So that's what head coverings were all about in first-century Corinth. And so, and so that is why it was vital to the Apostle Paul that women wear the head covering while they were speaking in any way in public worship. To do otherwise would to communicate all kinds of things that he did not want them communicating. Now that brings us to verse 6. 1 Corinthians eleven six says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So here Paul is using the word head in a couple of different ways again. It's, 
It's hard for us to imagine how disgraceful it would have been for a married woman to shave her head. It would have symbolized that not only was she an unfaithful wife, but it, but it also generally would have symbolized that, that she had I- abandoned her identity as a woman. I mean, if a, if a, if a woman um, intentionally, purposefully um, shaved her head, like if maybe something terrible happened and she had, she had to have her head shaved, it was sort of against her will, but if she would have shaved it um, not against her will, if she had chosen to save, shave it, it would have, it would have um, symbolized, it would have identified her uh, as a lesbian. It would have been, um, she would have, it would have been her sh- kind of abandoning her identity, not only as her husband's wife, but also as a, as a woman. And so, and whatever the reason for shaving her head or having it shaved, it would not only have been a disgrace upon her, but it would have been a disgrace upon her husband. There's quite a bit of Greco-Roman literature that makes it clear that this would have been just as humiliating for her husband. So Paul is using the word head here a couple of ways. She would have brought shame upon her own physical head, her own person, and she would have brought shame upon her head, her authority, her husband. Paul's point is this. Let's stay far away from this. Women should cover their heads during the worship service. Let's stay far away from this. Let's keep our head covered. And now verses 7 and through 10 say, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, so what is Paul saying here? Again, Whatever he's saying, we have to understand that it's important. It's grounded in creation, right? Paul's not hearkening. This is not just like a first century thing. This is not a passing fad. This is something that is grounded in creation. It predates the fall. Um, it, it, is, it is something um, that, is, um, that is permanent, that is permanently important. So, so what is he saying? First, he's not saying that women aren't created in the image of God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that women aren't created in the image of God. In all of Paul's writings, he holds to the Genesis account of creation, which teaches that man and woman are created in the image of God. He's not focusing on the word image. He's focusing on the word glory. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So what does he mean by that? Well, if you look at verse 8, it says, For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Paul is referring to when Eve was made from Adam's rib, and his logic is pretty straightforward. Since woman is made from man, she was meant to, in some ways, bring honor to him. So that's what I'm convinced he means by woman is the glory of man. That, that phrase means that wives were created to honor their husbands. And I'm convinced that that's the best way to understand this word. Like, we're, we're, we're going to interchange glory and honor here. Woman is the glory of man. It means woman is created to bring glory to man. A wife is created to, to bring glory to her husband. So I'm convinced that's the best way to understand this because, because of the flow of the passage, because of the way head is used here. There, there is a way in which we must, we must honor our head. All right, so that was clear in verse 6, and then also it's clear because glory and honor are used interchangeably down in verses 14 and 15. 
Now, in verses 14 and 15, we'll get there in a second, but it says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgrace? In other words, it is dishonoring for him. Um, but, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. In other words, it is, it is honorable for her. So he's using glory and honor interchangeably. And I, I believe he's doing that here as well. So that helps us to get a sense of what Paul means by glory. What does it mean that woman is a glory of man? It, it means that, that she is in, she's to, to bring honor to him. He also says in verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Woman was created for man's sake, in order to help him with the tasks God gave him. So, so again, there's creation logic here that Paul is working with. In the beginning, woman was created for man, and she was created to help man. So God's design should be clear in the relationship between a man and his wife. The wife should honor her husband. The, which is why verse 10 says, this is the, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So, so a few things here. First, some evangelical feminists frequently say that the leadership structure in the husband-wife relationship comes from the fall. Like, like what they mean is, like, because of the curse of sin, now men are the head of the households. They wouldn't be, except for sin has goofed everything up. But this is repeatedly seen to be untrue, according to the scriptures. We see that clearly here, Paul is grounding all this in creation itself. This is how it was before the fall. This is how it is now. So there is a way in which husbands are the head of their wives. They were created first. Um, there's a creation logic here. There's a, there's a design. There's an order that, that God has established. Um, and, and husbands are to lead their wives and wives are to submit to, the, to their lead. Now, uh, the, the second thing we have to see here is that we have to see how simple and almost imperceivable submission looks in the Apostle Paul's mind. So the whole of the New Testament is clear. A wife submitting to her husband is not groveling. It's not bowing down. It's not serving the husband's every whim. Um, I've, I've mentioned, um, perhaps I've mentioned on this podcast, I'm not sure, but I've mentioned in person with lots of people, uh, probably anybody here listening, um, I, I've talked with you before about some of the interesting things that my church taught growing up. I, I mean, I've heard um, women told that they that they should make sure that they're always beautiful for their husbands, that, that they have the house cleaned and the di- dinner ready for their husbands, that when he comes home from work, they should be ready to give him an evening of comfort and, and ease with everything his little heart desires. But when you read the New Testament, you don't get a sniff of that kind of silliness. In fact, when you factor in Ephesians 5.25, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, you understand that the husband doesn't primarily receive service from his wife. He primarily serves. It is true that he is the head. All right, and I'm going to do a short series someday on the way husbands and wives should relate to each other. Right? The the way a husband should lead his wife, what that looks like. And, and, And because he is the head, he does have responsibility that she doesn't bear. He does carry the tie-breaking vote, right? If there is a if there is a tie, if they're trying to make a, a decision and and they and they come to a standstill, right? That they, they come to a stalemate, the husband does get the tie-breaking vote. He is commanded by God to set the tone for the spiritual well-being of his household. Like he is to be held accountable in ways that his wife and children are not. And so, the, so yes, the, the husband is to lead. 
He is to lead, right? Um, and, and, and probably all of us know that there are all kinds of small and subtle, almost forgettable ways that this relationship gets uh, worked out in real life. Most important decisions that my wife and I make are so mutual that we hardly ever have a true vote. And, and I ever have to like, I, I hardly ever have to say, I mean, I, I can count like, I've been married almost 20 years, like maybe a handful of times where, where I've said, where we've just said, you know what, we, we disagree on this, uh, but here's what I believe is best and wisest for our family. This is what I believe we should do. And so even though we have a disagreement, we, we're going to go this way because this is what I firmly believe is right. I, that, that just hardly ever, I don't know if that's happened five times. I mean, it's, it is generally, we, we, we talk through things, we work through things, we figure things out, we, we pool the wisdom that God has given us, um, we seek counsel from other people sometimes. It's, it, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's very mutual, it's very relational, um, and so, yes, my wife submits to my leadership, but it is not a groveling. It is not a yes, sir, no, sir. I mean, it is not a, I'm going to, here's, you're going to do this and I'm going like, to, it is just, it, you know, that's not the way it gets worked out in real life. It's not. It is, submission is a real thing, but it is very important for us to note that we, you don't have a submission means a lifetime of serving your husband kind of thing in the New Testament. Instead, you, you get this kind of thing in the New Testament, which is make sure you wear your head covering. In other words, don't go out of your way to, to make it look like uh, you're, you're not married or make it look like you're sexually available to other men. Uh, honoring your husband simply means that you dress in ways which your culture recognizes that you are joyfully and faithfully committed to your husband. In other words, most of what honor your husband means here in 1 Corinthians 11 is simply don't bring disgrace upon him and yourself. So as husbands and wives, we want to honor God's good design and creation. Right? We want to we want to honor the, the way God designed things and ordered things, we want that design and that order to be clear, and we do not want to buck against it in any way. Andrew Wilson, uh, he's speaking of the wife being the glory of her husband. He says it this way. He says, the apple is the glory of the apple tree. The tree is the source of the apple. So which is better? Neither. But apples shouldn't act like trees, and trees shouldn't act like apples. They're both good, they're both useful, but they have a unique relationship with one another that is good and right and shouldn't be muddled. To muddle this relationship is to say that God's design isn't good. And then verse 10 also says, and we're just going to mention this real quickly, that that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority in her head, because of the angels. I don't know what because of the angels means. Tom Schreiner says, that this, pro- that this probably means that there are good angels that assist in worship and desire to see the order of creation maintained. When he says because of the angels, it's probably referring to that. There are, there are other passages of scripture that, that show that there are angels who are intently interested in what happens here on earth, especially when it comes to what happens in like corporate worship services. And so it's probably referring to that. But no one, no one that I know of is like 100% sure. But no matter what Paul means there, it doesn't change the, 
the argument and the point of the passage um, at all, um, thankfully. <laughs> so now, let's look at verses 11 and 12. Um, 11 and 12. And I know, I know we're covering a lot here. Again, if you have any questions, please feel re- free to reach out to me. Um, uh, and uh, I'll be glad to try to um, help you think through whatever questions this has sparked. So anyhow, now verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Okay, so this is a very important nevertheless. Paul realizes that he is talking very clearly about the fact that men lead in the home. The the man is the leader of the wife. He is the head of the wife. And he also realizes that this absolutely could create some misunderstandings. And so he's going to go out of his way to point out that women, once again, women are equal in personhood and in value. There is absolutely no way in which they are second-class citizens. So when he is assuming his leadership role in the home, the husband must carry great respect for his wife's personhood and her value. So... So two things come from this passage that must be obvious in a husband. When you see a husband leading his wife, these two things must be obvious. One, you have to see the courage to lead. Because he was born a male, because he is a husband, he has the responsibility from God to lead his wife and to lead his home. This is from God. So he has to have this courage to lead. And then two, he has to have this humble care. Because his wife is equal to him in worth, he leads her with humility and respect. He understands that in God's good design, men, and women for that matter, wouldn't be here without their mother. God has given us this persistent, gentle reminder that she is equal and he is always to treat her as such. And we also know this is really only possible in the Lord, our verses say. In my own strength, I can at least, I I might be able to appear to at least do one of these things. I, I might either appear as a courageous leader, or maybe uh, as someone who humbly cares for his wife, I I can at least probably, my personality may tend to one of those things or the other. Um, But in my strength, I can only, I can't, I definitely can't do both. I definitely can't do both in my own strength. Um, and, And there are many people who would want to use one of these ideas to erase the other. Some people wholeheartedly believe that, they, that, that as a husband, they are born to lead. They are called to lead. That they, as a husband, they're going to lead. But when you see that leadership in action, it becomes very apparent that they don't think of their wives, or even women in general maybe, as if they're created with equal worth. Right? So sometimes leadership um, does not look like humble care. And then other people wholeheartedly believe that men and women are equal in worth, but they reject the idea that men should lead. So we do this too often. We, we use one clearly stated biblical truth to erase another clearly stated biblical truth. Let's not do that. And thankfully, again, Paul tells us this in the Lord. We can do this because of Christ and only because of Christ. Now we turn to verses 13 through 15. It says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her, hair, with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. 
So what does Paul mean by, does not nature itself teach? Tom Schreiner says that Paul's use of nature elsewhere and the use of teach suggests that he is referring to the natural and instinctive sense of right and wrong God has planted in us, especially with respect to sexuality. This sense of what is appropriate or fitting has been implanted in human beings from creation. Romans 1, 26 and 27 is an illuminating parallel because of the same word used. If you remember, um, in Romans 1, it says God gave the people up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And so, Women and men involved in a homosexual relationship have exchanged the natural function of sexuality for what is contrary to nature, i.e. they have violated the God-given created order and natural instinct and therefore are engaging in sexual relations with others of the same sex. So, So we put that line of thinking in this context and we see we have a natural instinct All human beings have a natural instinct to live according to what our culture deems appropriate for our gender. So so we psychologically and instinctively know what is male and what is female in our culture. We know what symbol, what signals we're sending when we dress a certain way. We know it. So if I showed up to, to church, if I showed up to preach and I, and I was wearing a dress or if I was wearing high heels or even if I had a certain kind of scarf wrapped ar- around, uh, I was wearing men's clothes except for this one scarf I was wearing and it was obviously a scarf that I borrowed from my wife. And there are, there are scarves that men wear on cold days and then there are, or, or whatever, and then there are scarves that only women wear and they're like, it's very, it's, um, yeah, and so I, it would be obvious to everyone um, that I was that I was going against the the cultural norms. If I if I wore lipstick or I had nail polish on, everyone instinctively knows that that would be backwards behavior. Now, of course, there are people who purposefully push back against what is natural, but Paul's point here is simple and straightforward. Don't dress in a way in which you instinctively, psychologically know is opposite of what's culturally normal for your gender. It's very important to note that there is some variance if you were to travel from one part of the world, if you were to hop in a time machine and travel from one century to a different one. But Paul's point is clear. You instinctively know What is appropriate dress? So abide by that. He says in verse 16, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He is simply saying here, we don't allow contentiousness in our churches. If you continually push back against this principle, you will face church discipline. All right. So that is a run-through of the verses. Now, very quickly... What does this have to do with our lives today? What do we need? What, how do we abide by 1 Corinthians 11? Number one, here's the big one. All right, I'm going to go through this and then I've just got some bullet points after that for you. Um, number one, translate the physical symbol 
into our own culture. It is clear that, that the teaching on head coverings is permanently important. Right? It is, it is clear that the teaching on head coverings is permanently important. It will never not be important. The principle behind the teaching comes from creation. It reflects the gospel. It is a permanent principle. But it's also clear that head coverings no longer symbolize what they symbolized in first century Corinth. So it's a, so it's a cultural, momentary, physical symbol of a permanent spiritual principle. It is a, it is a physical symbol of a spiritual principle. So we must commit ourselves to translating that physical symbol into our own day and culture. There are so many things from 2,000 years ago that simply do not mean the same as they did then. The principle is still intact, but the way it gets translated in our culture is different. So Andrew Wilson clarifies it this way. He says, so for example, when we read the exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss, we take the meaning of the physical symbol, which is an expression of familial love and affection that brothers and sisters would use, and translate it into symbols that exist within our own culture for familial love and affection. He's from the United Kingdom, and so he says, Most adult men in the UK do not kiss their brothers. We hug, or if we're more reserved, shake hands instead. Adult men in France, on the other hand, do kiss their brothers. Adult Eskimos might rub noses for all I know. So in each of these cultures, we greet one another in the church in the same way we would greet our physical brothers and sisters. In doing so, we are unthinkingly perhaps translating the sign to preserve the thing signified, and rightly so. Um, and so he's, he's putting, he's, he's rightly, correctly putting, greet one another with a holy kiss, right in the same category as, as head coverings. So we want to do what Paul has commanded us to do, which is, in the case of, in the case of greet one another with a holy kiss, it's, it's, it's to greet our brothers and sisters at church as if they are family, because they are. So we greet them the way, our, a, way a culture would, would, would greet and treat their biological brothers and sisters. There's a closeness, there's an affection, there's a, there's a family reunion every time we gather together. There's a, that, and that, that joy is obvious. That love is obvious in our gatherings. But doesn't mean we actually kiss another man in our church. We don't kiss him on the cheek. Nobody, nobody does that in, in, in Warsaw, Indiana. Nobody does that. So we don't do it. But we abide by the principle. We translate that symbol into our own culture. We do the same thing with head coverings. So when we are gathering for worship, men and women must be very careful not to dress in any way that would confuse their gender distinction. Also, men must not dress in a way that draws unnecessary or arrogant attention to their status, wealth, or influence. Women must not dress in a way that communicates that they are sexually available to other men. So now, there's a there are several matters of conscience even within these parameters, but the principle that we are always striving to live by is, is clear. We want, we want the, the God-given gender distinctions to be clear. We want the fact that we are honoring Christ to be clear. We, we want the fact that we are faithful to our spouse to be clear. So that's, that's the first 
that's the first piece of application. That was number one, right? That was that was number one. We want to translate the physical symbol into our own culture. And then here's here's two through seven, and then I'm signing off. And number two, let's live our lives with the intention of reflecting the wise design of our Creator. Number three, it's good for wives to remember that since this is ultimately about submission to God, there may come times when you have to obey God rather than man, as Scripture says. And in this case, man might be your pastor or your husband. So sometimes we have to submit to God rather than man. Um, so if your pastor or if your husband is, is, is leading you to sin, they're influencing you to sin, they're directing you to sin, if if that's what your husband is doing, or or God forbid, that's what your that's your that's what your pastor that's the way the pastor is leading the church, um, then it will that there there may come times where you where you where you obey God rather than man, and so in those those situations, seek wisdom, seek counsel. Number four, don't use one principle of truth from Scripture to try to erase a different one. It's one of the things that stood out to me in this passage. Super helpful. Don't use one principle of, or truth from Scripture to try to erase a different one. Number five, don't be afraid to appeal to nature, especially as it is further interpreted by the Bible. Paul appeals to nature here. We're going we're gonna to do a whole series of, of lessons on that um, someday on this podcast. We're, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to learning, digging in to the way Paul uses um, you, the way Paul uses nature. God has created us with, with um, psychological instincts on certain areas to know right from wrong. Let's not be afraid to appeal to that when we're, when we're discussing with people what is proper, what's appropriate. Number six, God wants all of us to be actively serving in our local church. Number seven, he graciously allows each of us to image and follow his son in our different gender roles. So that is all that I have on the topic of head coverings. Again, if you have any questions, any comments, um, reach out to me. Feel free to email me. And, uh, and then in a couple of weeks, I'm taking a couple of weeks off, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a series on productivity. So what does the Bible have to say about that? So um, until then, thank you very much for listening.